don't define from the start what success looks like, you never know if you reach it. And then it becomes this competition of folks making brochures and saying all the good stuff that they did. And that's the biggest value that SBTI brings to the table, right? That's what folks sign up to because we standardized so everybody knows and everybody's dealing with the same scope of targets on the same timeframes, on the same basis, on the same methods, what success looks like in a standardized way. So then folks align and know if they're delivering on this or not. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Wharton Current. I'm Ned Downey, PhD student in public affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. And today, Adriel Barrett-Johnson and I are chatting with Luis Amaral, CEO of the Science-Based Targets Initiative, or SBTI. Now, SBTI's work is something I first actually encountered as a researcher as part of a report I published in 2021 on corporate target setting around carbon emissions. So I'm pretty excited to be able to bring them to you all. They're a UN-backed partnership of four of the world's biggest sustainability NGOs that helps corporations ensure that the targets they set are actually aligned with what the world needs to meet its climate goals. So when you see a corporate climate target, check out whether it's gone through SBTI validation or not because its process is one of the most widely accepted measures of corporate climate ambition. Now we'll talk today with Luis about how he came to SBTI, how SBTI fits into the broader landscape of climate standard setting, how it hopes to grow, and much, much more. So let's jump right in. Welcome to this week's episode of The Wharton Current. I'm Ned Downey. I'm a PhD student in public affairs at Princeton. And I'm Adriel Barrett-Johnson, a second-year Wharton MBA and joint Master's International Studies candidate. And we're joined this week by Luis Amaran. He's CEO of the Science-Based Targets Initiative, or the SBTI. The SBTI, it's a partnership between four major global sustainability NGOs, and it seeks to drive ambitious climate action in the private sector by enabling organizations to set science-based emissions reduction targets. Now, Luis came to this role from a career in sustainable finance. He was director for Commodities and Finance at the World Resources Institute, one of the partner organizations of the SBTI. And before then, he was also head of sustainability for Rabobank in South America. He's also served on boards and committees in the Brazilian government and in private sector and in trade associations. So Minerva Foods, Cargill, Bon Sucro, and more. So Luis, welcome to the Wharton Current. Well, thank you so much, Edmund and Adriel. It's a great pleasure to be here. And thanks for everyone listening. Well, maybe we'll start off with a question that we always like to ask, which is what brought you to serving as CEO of the SPTI? I sort of said a little bit about your background, but you also did a doctorate in international relations and affairs at the University of Sao Paulo. You've had a lot of experience across sustainability, business, and international cooperation. So how'd you get here? Well, thanks, Edmund. Yeah, well, indeed, I had a career that was divided into four main areas, right? I had a lot of time spent on universities and think tank, as you pointed out, which was doing master's and PhD, doing research. So that scientific background. Then I spent a significant time of my career on, on the industry, as you mentioned, working with mainly the agribusiness industry, working to actually implement programs on sustainability, set targets, get certified, uh, so all that good stuff. Then I had the third quarter of my career, which I spent on the financial sector, as you mentioned. My job at the time was actually guaranteed that we're funding folks or companies that were doing the right thing. So we're implementing the sustainability due diligence, implementing that into credit. And finally, just on the very last quarter of my career that I moved for a, a civil society organization in which we're trying to implement programs and work with others to promote global changes. So having sat on those four different chairs, I think that I learned two main things. The first one is that 
innovation really happens in diversity. You need different folks thinking differently to try to solve the same problem. If everybody's thinking the same way, it's much harder. So that's a benefit of it. The challenging part is usually folks speak different languages, use different jargons. So we need folks that can translate the bridges between those different organizations. And that's why I ended up on SDTI, because I think it has exactly those characteristics. We try to bring different stakeholders that are all trying to save the same problem and try to translate how to achieve that in a way that everybody understands by driving on that cooperation and innovation. How about you tell us a little bit more about what you do at SBTI? What is your role and how does your background and that breadth of experience that you were just describing, how does that inform how you approach your role today? First, a little bit about SBTI. So we are the science-based targets initiatives, and we are a leading standard setter in a certification body for ambitious corporate climate action. We do mainly two things. One, we set standards and guidances aligned with what scientific models tells us that need to happen. So we're not looking on what can be done. We're looking what needs to happen, what must happen for us to keep global warming on the paths according to the models. And then we validate companies' plans that submit to us if their plans are adhering with those standards. And by doing that, then we have a third impact, which is that we redefine what good looks like in other aspects of corporate climate action, like policy making, for example, which see companies doing, see can be done, and therefore can implement some of this uh, innovation that SPTI brings to the table. So this is what SPTI does, and it has been very successful to date. Last year, for example, we validated more targets than all the previous years combined. So what it started as a ripple is now really a wave, but I see an even bigger wave coming after this wave. We now have 4,600 companies committed to setting science-based targets, out of which half of them have already done so. So this is SPTI. My job coming in, I've been appointed as its first CEO just a year now, and it was exactly to bring what was a very successful startup into a consolidated scale-up. We were a partnership of different organizations that started seven years ago, trying to raise the bar. But as I said, what was a dream of a ripple is now really a wave. So now we're really ramping up and scaling up our internal processes, our governance, really to be able to meet the demands that the world has on SDTI today. And how do you find companies or how do companies find you? You're working with all these different companies and this is voluntary. How does that relationship get started? I think that's, that's the beauty of the movement that is being created, right? Again, what is started with a few companies, a few leaders, then you get somebody else and then they bring somebody else and then they bring somebody else. And all of a sudden you get this machine to start work. And that's what we're seeing now. And that's the beauty of it. So when SPTI started, it was usually many of the big, very, very big companies that wanted to lead on this way. Those were the ones that were getting involved and they had reasons to do that. As they got in, then some of the peers started to say, well, I cannot be left out. So I need to be brought in as well. So we started to get other bigger companies as well that maybe were not on the edge of that discussion and so on and so forth. But now we're in a place in which the system is retrofitting itself, right? As a company brings in, your peers look into it and they say, well, when in as well, they cannot be left behind. So there's this race to the top happening. And the second one is the power of supply chain is starting to show. A company comes in, and as you know, for many companies, I would say the majority of them, they have their scope one and their scope two emissions, which are the emissions within their operations. But the majority of their emissions actually are in scope three, 
which are their supply chains. So once they join, they also need to bring their suppliers in because if their suppliers do the right thing, that means that they're getting into the way for 1.5. So we're starting to see that process happening as well. One example of it, just to finalize it, Asia last year was about 20% of our companies and has been the region which has grown fastest over the past years. Now about 24, 25% of our companies. And a big importance of that are the leading Asian companies that are coming in, but also the suppliers of the global markets that are also being brought in through that power of supply chain. And I'm just curious, how do you structure your services to these companies? Because you are able to provide something that they really need. Is it structured kind of like a consulting model? Or what does that look like? The science-based targets is a not-for-profit, right? So our business model relies on different sources of funding. The first and the majority is philanthropic donations, right? So we are funded, especially our center development process, by philanthropic donations that are made on a charitable causes to guarantee that we're creating those standards. Then we have our validation work, which is when companies submit. And for that, we do charge a fee that represents only about 25% of our global budget to guarantee that we can provide the services on that validation work. But our work is as an auditor, right? We're validating if the plan aligns. Companies sometimes come to us and ask for support. Can you help me setting the plan? And that's when we actually have consultants and rely a lot on other experts that actually are the ones that can supply the type of consultancy for the company. So our work is not as a consultancy for companies, it's as a validator of their plans. And on the subject of those plans, let's talk more about them, about corporate climate targets. There's a lot of debate in the academic literature and a lot of public also wondering about as the transition becomes more and more important, how do we encourage the private sector in the right direction and avoid greenwashing? So I want to hear from you. Why does setting targets matter? And particularly, why does it matter to do it through the SBTI process? If don't define from the start what success looks like, you never know if you reach it. And then it becomes this competition of folks making brochures and saying all the good stuff that they did. But if you don't define from the start what the success is, it's very hard to see if you have followership. And that's the biggest value that SBTI brings to the table, right? That's what folks sign up to. Because we standardized so everybody knows and everybody's dealing with the same scope of targets on the same timeframes, on the same basis, on the same methods, what success looks like in a standardized way. So then folks align and know if they're delivering on this or not. Just one quick anecdote. And I worked a lot of my life on agriculture. And about 2010, more or less, many companies started to make commitments that they wanted to and deforestation from their supply chains. They wanted to get rid of deforestation on their beef, palm production, for example. Well, 13 years on, we're still debating on whether or not that has been fully achieved because there was no standardized way of definition of success. So some folks were doing something within one scope, some doing some slightly different scope, and that's what SBTI is trying to prevent. So now we establish very clear what success looks like in a transparent process that was defined through public consultation with different types of stakeholders. So everybody knows from the start what the goalpost is. I'm really struck by how a lot of consulting companies try and sell and offer a similar service to companies. I used to work in consulting, and so I'm very familiar with how a lot of companies will hire consulting companies to help them make action plans for how to reduce emissions, set targets. I wonder if that comes up in your conversations with these companies, whether that kind of alternative path of who else they might work with to do this work ever gets referenced and what you think about that. 
Edgerell, thanks for the question. I think our ultimate goal is making corporate climate action the norm, right? But I have a secondary goal, how we need to do that. We need to kind of replicate what the financial sector does. Whenever you look at a balance sheet of a company, you know exactly what is on that balance sheet. Whenever a company reports on their progress or their profits, well, with some exceptions, but you know exactly what is there. And that only happened because there was an ecosystem and a standardization process that took 100 years to get there. So whenever you say, well, it's very easy to do a balance sheet for a company and report on profits, it's because there's 100 years of history. The first standards on financial disclosure were from the late 1800s. We need to replicate that ecosystem for corporate climate action, but we don't have 100 years. We have to do much, much faster. So all hands on deck is very welcomed. We need the policy. We need the folks that are doing standards for transparency. So for example, this SEC proposed rules or ISSB proposed rules, they're trying to define rules on the standards on how folks need to report and be transparent on their reports. It's very needed. Then it comes us with the ambition saying, okay, now how are we going to actually deliver on that? And we're very important in defining that goals post. And then we need this ecosystem of consultants, of companies, of experts that are actually implementing this thing, right? If we're going to make this business as usual, we need all hands on deck as we can. One final example, Edward, we have, I think, 2 million financial accountants in the world that went to grad school, that did all of that work. We need that for sustainability and carbon as well. It sounds like a little bit of what you're describing is that there's one step of setting a meaningful target and another step of delivering it. And it sounds like what you're describing is that the role of the SBTI traditionally has been focused on the target setting process. And then after you work with the company to set a target, that's when consulting services or, or other kinds of companies come in and help them execute on that. Is that generally how it goes? There's a value chain of events that need to happen and need to happen in a certain order. And they're all start with A. First, there's accounting. So there are standard setters for accounting on carbon emissions. For example, the greenhouse gas protocol, we are very dependent on their 20-year history on defining what are the rules for measuring emissions. And you have a whole ecosystem of that standard and consultants that help you do the accounting. Then you have the standards that come for the ambition, which is us, right? So defining what ambition looks like and what are the rules for ambition. After that, there's the action. So how do you translate that ambition into actionable plans for your company. And again, there are consultants that are doing that. And finally, there's the accountability, which is where you actually report on your progress on how you're doing in that. So SBTI core value is on the ambition. That's what we do best. But we also are starting to support and move into the accountability. So we want to support that accountability process, not reinventing the wheel, but guarantee that once you have the ambition, which is a paramount condition before we move into accountability, we can support folks that are working to accountability. So in a nutshell, Adriel, we have all of those things that need to happen and they need to happen in an organized fashion to get this machine going. Absolutely. On accountability, I understand that you all are working on developing mechanisms to assess and measure performance towards those targets. Can you tell us a little bit more about that transition towards starting to measure performance and why it matters for us to be TI to start working on that component as well. If we look at the beginning of the movement many years back, we started to say, I commit to becoming not zero, I commit to reducing my emissions. So we had that commitment process in which companies can still commit and not have targets yet. And then they have a time to set those targets. 
then we really now on the bread and butter of setting targets. So once you're committed, you're submitting the targets. And as you said, we validated more targets for companies this year than all of the previous years combined. More than 2,600 companies across the globe have already had their targets set. Once they do that, then they're implementing those plans. So we want now to move into what is the next step after that, which is the accountability. So we are starting to create a process for a measuring, reporting, evaluation guidance, exactly on this point, finding this progress framework. If we're just in the beginning of the process, right? And we need to follow the process. We need to follow the open consultation, but we will create some guidance to support companies and the ecosystem going from the ambition to the accountability and progress reporting. Going back to something you mentioned earlier about the standard setting side, if you guys see yourself as part of that ecosystem, the climate disclosures movement has produced a lot of different voluntary frameworks and initiatives. So reporting standards like the task force for climate disclosure recommendations, you've got sustainability accounting or standing board, global reporting initiative. You've also got voluntary platforms that have a disclosure function like CDP, the Earth Wild Carbon Disclosure Project. And your own work kind of falls a bit into that category though with a bit more sort of science-based guidance as part of that process. There's been a movement more recently to try to introduce a bit more standardization in that area. And you've alluded to this as well in what you've said about the value of having those widely accepted standards. So that's in some ways through the ISSB, which you already mentioned earlier, that kind of a single unified global standard around climate disclosures or sustainable disclosures. But also in some jurisdictions is mandatory reporting, right? In Hong Kong and the EU. So what I wanted to ask you is, what do you see as the role for mandatory and voluntary standards and platforms for climate disclosures? Two things. Well, the first one, again, as you said, we need to separate the standards, what they're developed for. The standards for the accounting, they're the standards for disclosure, they're the standards for ambition, right? So although they might seem as the same things, they're very, very different. And they are one dependent on the other. So as we mentioned, TCFD or uh, the IFRS or SEC or SSB, they're all about disclosure. Greenhouse gas protocol is all about accounting. We are all about ambition and goals. So they are complementary. So this is the first thing. The second, that's why I say we welcome standardization of accounting and we welcome standardization of disclosure, including through policy, if that can happen. Because the more the information becomes available, the easier our job is and the easier everyone's job is. What the role of those standards is really leading the way. We need to raise the bar so policy can follow and raise the floor. We will always set the line in the sand that we're going to be based our ambition on what needs to happen and not just what can be a compromise. That's what is with me, SBTI, bread and butcher. But Edmund, success to me will be a time in which policy has catched up and SBTI is no longer needed. I say in 2050, if SBTI is still around me exactly what we're doing, that's not what we want. In 2050, SBTI will have to either have morphed into something else or have disappeared for us to be successful. I'm with you on that. I do hope that we can move in that direction. The distinction you made of accounting, disclosures, and ambition makes a lot of sense. On the ambition front and your guys' growing penetration, you already alluded to it, right? As of 2021, your covered targets were extended over, I think, a third of global market capitalization, around 1.5 gigatons of scope one and scope two emissions, and that's up 10x since 2015, and you say we've got more to come. On the other hand, you know, global emissions are around 50 gigatons. So there's more to come and there's a lot more room to grow as well. But even where you guys are right now, it's already a large range of sectors, sizes, geography. So how do you guys think about creating platforms for ambition that can fit companies across so many backgrounds? So 
we need this standardization of what good looks like. And that's what we're trying to do. But we also recognize we're navigating the edge of knowledge. It hasn't been done before. And we've done it in three years, again, compared to this financial sector, it took 100 years to get to the place where they are in terms of disclosure of financial information. So we need to advance and innovate faster. As you said, things are picking up. Our progress report from last year is already pretty outdated because numbers doubled in one year. So we doubled the numbers of companies double the numbers of companies with validated targets. So we're just closing the numbers, but again, I think we're at most three gigatons of emissions, just roughly, as you said, 6% of global emissions, but it's 12 to 14% of listed companies emissions, which is the area in which we're working with. Our theory of change, how we think we can change the world is based on innovation fusion theory. No matter what the innovation is, from a pen to a cell phone, if you get to that 20% tipping point, it just takes off. So our goal is really getting 20% of the world because we think if we can do that, then it's an unstoppable force. As you said, and we try to measure that with three KPIs, money, emissions, and number of companies. So as I said, we already achieved the money. We have more than one third of the global economy committed, and there are about 40,000 listed companies in the world. So our goal is to get to 10,000 listed companies because that's 20% mark. If we can't reach that 20% mark, it's our theory that it's just an unstoppable force. On the question of ambition and unstoppable forces, I'm wondering if you've encountered tension within companies when you're helping them set targets. I a little bit feel like you're making it, you're making it sound so easy. And the reason that this is so important and the work that you're doing is so important is that it's really hard. It's really hard to set these targets and then to take meaningful action towards them. It means huge change for these companies. So what, what kind of pushback do you encounter in your work? Well, as a standard setter, everybody will always have an opinion. So whenever I go to meetings, I get lobbied by folks on the extreme company side and on the extreme environmental side. They all want something different. Every single conversation that I have, somebody wants something out of SPTI. That's exactly the place where we want to be, right? If there's one stakeholder group there's 200%, 300% happy, and there's no anything that they wish were a bit different, probably you haven't hit the mark. As a standard setter, we really need to be on that place in which we're harmonizing things that everybody sees and is important, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily 100% what they would want. So with companies, it's not different. And you, you're, many, you're right, Adriel, it's hard. I've been there, done that, right? I was in a company for many years trying to set targets, trying to implement goals, trying to, and it's not easy. It's not something that we're used to. But I think two things are important. And I have heard that from people within companies. If you don't define success, it doesn't work even internally. So they've told me, it was hard, Luis. We didn't know how to do it. And it's true. Sometimes it takes ambition. You don't know exactly how you're going to do that. Probably you know what the next two or three years look like, but you don't know exactly how your business needs to look like in 10 years. But you need to make those decisions now. By setting that ambition, then they would set a process in motion inside the companies. Then other departments will start to roll all towards the same vision. But it does take, and I agree with you, Adriel, that courage of the business leaders to be able to take that ambition. And it's hard and it's daunting and you don't know all of the answers for sure. Probably not the next two years. You don't know necessarily the next five and definitely not, not the next 10. But it does need that to take that courage. To finalize, I give one example. When Kennedy made his famous speech, We'll get to the moon by the end of the decade, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. They didn't have all the technology. They did not know how they were going to get there. 
But it took that level of ambition, setting where the goalpost was to get the process moving. And one fun fact, when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, half of the engineers that were working there were still in high school when Kennedy made this speech. So it takes that level of ambition of a leader to define what it goes and give the conditions for the folks to deliver on it. I love that example. You mentioned that sometimes people in the climate community wish that you were pushing harder and setting these targets. I'd love to hear how you've experienced the reception of the environmental and climate community to the work that you're doing, whether you feel like you get celebrated for it or if it's more complicated than that. We were founded by four of the most renowned climate NGOs and climate community organizations in the world, right? So that's, that's our bread and butter, that it was on our DNA. So we are part of that. As we become a standard setter, as I said, I would say everybody that I talk to says how important SBTI is. Everybody agrees 100% on what we need to do. Everybody wishes that the 10% of it was slightly different, right? But that's fine. That's exactly what Woods would have because it's through the process, it's through the consultation process that we get to the standardization. Uh, it's always going to be something like that. So I would say, Adriel, no matter if the companies are saying, oh, you're too hard, or some advocacy NGOs are saying, oh, you're too easy, they all would say, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad what you're doing. I just wish you would do this slightly different. And again, it's part of the process. I'm going to once again go back to some 2021 data, which I fear might be already out of date as you described here. But, but you guys said in 2021, at least in your progress support, that you know, participation skews a bit more towards developed countries, heavy emitting industries continue to be underrepresented. And you know some of these underrepresented contexts well, been in the agriculture sector in Brazil for a lot of your career. What do you guys think are the most important factors to expand SBTI's reach into the developing world more deeply and into high emitting industries more deeply? So... First of all, I'll start with the second question, if it's okay. So the media industries. We have standards which are one-size-fits-all standards. They apply to any company anywhere in the globe, in any sector. As we did that, we realized that there are idiosyncrasies for some sectors. But for some sectors, we wanted to start to create additional guidance to deal with those idiosyncrasies, either to close loops or to deal with the idiosyncrasies that needed to make them more important. So we started to create specific sectorial guidance. So just as an example, in the past six months, published three new sectoral guidances that represent 30% of global emissions, food and agriculture and forests, cements and chemicals. We're working now on steel, on buildings, on oil and gas. So we mapped what are the sectors that are the big emitters and want to deliver these specific guidances to facilitate that process and to close the loops to make it very applicable to them. But again, even without that, and we already have for energy, we already have for maritime sector, so one way is doing that, right? But again, you don't need to have that specific guidance for set, setting up targets for your sector. It's just that we, for the biggest emitter sectors, we're working on the idiosyncratic guidances to go further and in more detail. When it comes to the developing country, when I came in, coming from the developing country, my first gut instinct was, okay, we need to grow in the developing country, right? And there's over-representation. But after being here and looking at the numbers, you start to actually realize about 50% of our bit of our companies are in, in Europe, which again, it's expected. As I mentioned, about 24 to 25% now are in Asia, about 17% in North America, and then the rest across the rest of the world. That is a good picture of where the money, the emissions are, right? So if we were to have a complete distribution of equal representation across the globe, that are not going to be equitable because that's not where the missions are. We obviously need to create and grow from developing countries, but I think we, we are on a good 
position when it comes to the distribution of emissions and com number of companies and where the money is globally. That's the first point. The second point is it really doesn't matter where the company is located as much. If you look to your question before, Edmond, where the companies are coming, the majority of the ones that come first are the multinational ones. Does it really matter if their head office is in Geneva, in New York, in Sao Paulo, in Jakarta, or in Delhi? They have operations globally. Once they set their target, their target is a global target. So if you have a Geneva-based institution that has operations in Vietnam and they set a target, they will have to do investments in Vietnam. They will have to do investments in Mexico, right? So this is the second point. The challenge is more SMEs vis-a-vis -vis large companies, not as much the location of those companies. It sounds like the way you work with companies varies from sector to sector. And I'd love to hear you comment on the maturity curves that you find different companies are on and the variability in how they're approaching emissions reductions. Usually when I talk to companies from all the sectors, I usually joke with a few and say, you have a hard job, but it's not as hard as another sector. So obviously it depends on the sector. There's some sectors that is less hard. If you look, for example, I don't know, technology, they don't go or even and even the sector that I know the most, and when I tell that some of my old colleagues say, are you crazy with food and agriculture? They have relatively easy. They don't have to change their business models. They just need to do better. There are other sectors which have much harder because means that achieving the objectives, they might need to rethink how they do businesses. And those are obviously the harder things. So our approach is not different from sectors. Our approach is what is the model, what the science is, what this could look like. The challenge is obviously the level of change that a sector needs to go through. And obviously the level of ambition that a company has. So I would say that there's a sector and the company that actually defines ambition and defines maturity. Going back to developing world questions, as a China guy, I sort of always subject our listeners to questions about China. But I'm really curious to know more about your guys' engagement at the world's largest emitter today. It's around 30% of global emissions. And comes from a very different profile from many other markets, a strong presence of the state-owned sector. I think when I last checked, you guys had around 150 commitments there, around 50 companies with approved targets. Tell us more about what it's like to do that engagement with China and how you guys bring that ambition standard setting into that market. When, as I said, that Asia was one of the regions that grew the fastest this year, from 20 to 24% of our companies, China was actually the one that grew the fastest. They are now our, our second market. And again, we're, we're studying and developing further these strategies to grow there. But I think the first force has really the, the power of supply chain. As I said, companies that had targets, including in Asia, that actually start to bring their suppliers on. And then, then the location of their suppliers that matter last because they need to engage and supply and support their suppliers that should be brought in. Uh, but let's watch the space because obviously, as you said, we need to go where the puck is going. And we know that even though Asia is not the one that had the most responsibility in terms of past emissions. That's one of the reasons it grows the fastest on the future. So we need to be very involved there as well. And again, going from 20 to 24% of our companies in Asia is a good representation that you're on the right track of having a good equitable membership or not membership, but number of companies on the portfolio. Makes sense. That's pretty interesting to hear. We've asked you a lot of questions about your outbound engagement with companies. Another thing that we want to wrap up with is to learn a little bit more about the internal organization because you guys are kind of a distinctive structure, right? You're a partnership of several organizations. You've got WRI, WWF. These are generalist environmental nonprofits, real sort of global giants of the sort of green environment area. You've got the UN Global Compact. You've got CBP. 
how did these groups come together to found SBTI? And how do you guys coordinate across so many different stakeholders? You know, you're at WRI, your CTOs at CBP. I can imagine that it's a, the organizational process maybe looks a little bit different from some of the other bodies that you've been in before. When I joined SBTI as its first CEO, I, I described the mission is exactly what one of the missions is exactly how we make this very successful startup into a consolidated scale-up, a consolidated institution that is really regulating the market. And I said, one of the key priorities for me as a, as a joining was exactly the re revamping our governance and our operational model. I had announced that we were doing four key things. Uh, one was that we were creating an executive leadership team, which still hosted by our partners. It's still accountable to me and to the executive leadership itself. So it's a professional one. It's just that we are hosted by the different partners, but we are 100% SBTI that happens to be hosted by one of the partners. And we increased the expertise on that in executive leadership team as well. The second one is on, on incorporation. As I mentioned, we are incorporating SBTI as a standalone organization, as a standard setter, as a charitable organization that is linked to our partners, but is independent from them. The third one is board expansion. We have our four and five founding partners because women business is also one of our important partners but we want to bring additional expertise. So soon we're going to be announcing additional folks that are going to be joining our board in terms of governance. And the third one is the development of a technical council, which is a separate body to help us make the difficult calls. As a scientist, I know sometimes you look and there's evidence for A and evidence for B, and then you have to make a metabological call. We need this group, this technical council to help us make those difficult calls. So those four key governance enhancements or what taking, are taking us from this startup to this consolidated scale-up as a global standard center. You can see how the priority for impact is getting that organization in a position where you guys can all row in the same direction. And you guys have already been doing that. And it sounds like to hear some of the reform, the restructuring or the governance adjustments that you guys are making is going to continue to reinforce that. So I think that's everything that we have today. Thanks so much for making time to join us, Luis. We really enjoyed chatting with you. No, my pleasure. Again, Adriel, it was a pleasure for everybody listening. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this episode of The Wharton Current. And special thanks to our guests, Luis Amaral. This was Adriel Barrett-Johnson and Ned Downey. We look forward to seeing you again soon.